Hi everyone, welcome to Name Drop San Diego. I'm Christy Totten, your host along with Abby Hamblin. Today we're talking to Ken Lane. Ken Lane is an author and journalist, also a radio host. He's a graduate of San Diego High School with a major in broadcast journalism, and he used a lot of that training to report here in San Diego and abroad before returning home to write media criticism and political commentary for websites like Gawker and Wonkat. Today he runs Desert Oracle. It's a zine, a radio show that broadcasts in the high desert based out of Joshua Tree, and now a book of the same name. A shout out to our editor, Matthew T. Hall, who gave Abby and I a copy of this book. It's this really fun collection of desert lore about Sasquatches and Joshua Tree, UFOs, uh, and just other weird stories based in the Mojave Desert. I definitely recommend you check it out. We talked to Ken about what attracts him to these weird stories about the haunted compound he works out of and just about things that people tend to misunderstand about the desert. Here's our interview with Ken Lane. You write a periodical called The Desert Oracle and also have a companion radio show and podcast and book of the same name. How do you come up with the stories or the info that makes its way into, um, you know, the periodical and the show? Do you kind of travel around the Southwest or do these stories make their way to you? Like, how does it all come together? Uh, every, every method. Some of these stories that have been on the show or in the periodical or the book start off as things I came across decades ago. And I've just been sort of carrying around. You know, if uh, if you find midway through life that you've been collecting something that you haven't had any professional use for, sometimes that's a, a hint to make use of it before you know death. So was this, I mean, more of a hobby up until you started this project? I've been spending as much time as I could in, in the desert, anywhere in the Southwest for 35 years, more, I guess. Um, so that's just what I did for, for my amusement, my enjoyment, regardless of what I was doing to make a living. And one of the things that I loved to collect when I was first driving across the Southwest and camping everywhere and exploring were these small self-published guidebooks that you could find all over. And they were often made by local booksellers who were also printers. You know, we've lost all this now. Now, if you want to print something, you get on the internet and they ship it from somewhere and they've run all the, the small printers out of business. But as recently as the 90s, early in this century, there were still some small printers often behind a bookshop or behind a business print shop. And they'd print these kind of little pamphlets or maps like ghost towns of Nevada or um, you know, Death Valley Jeep trails or whatever. And I just loved them. I loved how simple they were. I loved how they weren't fussy. They weren't trying to impress an editor or someone with an English degree. They were meant to impart information. And so that, that was one of the things I kept in mind when I got to the point where I wanted to start Desert Oracle, which was almost seven years ago now. 
So what attracts you to the desert and, you know, paranormal stories, sort of outlandish, uh, weird lore? I just love human folklore, uh, whether it's ancient, whether it's you know, Greco-Roman mythology or the Old Testament or the Gnostic gospels that floated around, just all the European folklore, you know, Celtic stuff, especially um, the fairy stories of the weird lights over the country roads and the strange entities and everything. And I think that there's a continuity in all of that stuff. But one thing that links it all, or links most of it, is these experiences that people report and turn over years and centuries and millennia around campfires and on stages and et cetera into folklore and mythology. Um, they almost by nature need to happen outside. They need to happen in a quiet area. They need to happen at best in wilderness or a road through wilderness. You know, you think, about all kinds of stories involve a road going through the wilderness, whether it's Robert Johnson, Mississippi, you know, making a deal with the devil to learn how to play guitar to innumerable crossroad stories throughout world culture. So because of an accident of history, because the way the United States protected the desert Southwest, kept it from being developed. We still have this wilderness out here from Southern California, from just over the mountains, from where you are in San Diego. Suddenly you're in the Anza Borrego desert wilderness and you can keep going almost to uh, the Great Plains. And it's just mass areas of public land, national forests, national parks, national monuments, military bases, which people tend to not think of as, as preserves, but they really are. Like they say like 29 Palms Marine Base near where I am here, which is uh, part of Camp Pendleton. You know, oh. it's, it's, the, it's the desert training base part of the West Coast Marine Base. Um, these places saved all this open space and kept it that way. And as a result, we have all these places. So unlike in most of the developed world, you can go a hour or two out of the megalopolis of Southern California or Phoenix or Vegas or whatever, and be in just pristine country. I mean, country where you can make a wrong turn and nobody will ever see you again. You know, you run out of gas, you think, oh, I can make it, and then you're dead. And these kinds of places are, are haunted not only by the things that happen, but by the potential for this kind of stuff. So as people drive through that space, they can hear you on the radio. Um, I don't know if you want to share kind of like the distance that your radio show covers, people can also find it in podcast form. Just go check out Desert Oracle online. Uh, but you also say inside the book, it says that you record this radio show from a haunted compound in the great Mojave wilderness. So can you tell us both about the show and then also where you record? Sure. 
in well four years ago this month the radio show had its debut here in Joshua Tree on our community radio station, KCDZ 107.7 FM. And that station is a family-owned station, one of the last, because it was a great wave of, of radio station consolidation, like in most media, throughout the uh, last years of the last century and just nonstop through the 21st century. They fought it off. And so it's a local station, it's a community station. And it covers, well, I've actually done this as one of the more fun parts of, of what I call work. Get in the car at night and drive and see how far the signal goes. So a lot of these places where you can hear the show, nobody lives there, you know, humans full time, but so I, I can tell people, sometimes somebody will say, hey, I'm going to Mojave National Preserve. Uh, we're going to camp over by Mid Pines Campground or Hole in the Rock or whatever. Can we get the show there? And usually I can tell them, like, yeah, you can get it you know, <laughs> after dark, but you'll be able to hear it. And that's when it's best. It's best when it crackles, too. So you can hear it from up here, Friday night to 10 p.m., coming up the 62 now, if you've ever been up here, you know, you get off the 10 and you come up Highway 62, which runs up this, this canyon. It's like a gauntlet. And about midway through there, you can pick it up and you can hear it in Yucca Valley, 29 Palms, Pioneer Town, uh, Landers, Wonder Valley. And you can continue to pick it up out in Amboy and then... Uh, all the way into the preserve. You can hear it in Zizek's, which everyone who's ever been to Vegas has driven by that weird sign, you know, Zizek's Road. What the hell's there? Nobody knows. Well, it's it's a, a California uh, desert education center, but it used to be a health resort built by this wonderful quack, um, Dr. Curtis Springer. Springer? Am I remembering his name correctly? I think so. Doc Springer. And he sold miracle cures, you know, like medicine shows, snake oil stuff off the radio. And what he'd do is he'd send a bus to the nickel where the hobos, you know, live Skid Row today in Los Angeles and say, everybody get on, you know, we'll pay you three square meals a day and we're building this resort. Well, they get on, then they get out there and there was no alcohol. So they didn't want to stay too long. They'd turn around and leave on the next bus out. He built his health resort on federal land with no permits. It was totally illegal. And he got away with it for something like 30 years. And finally, they threw him off and the state took it. Uh, so, sorry, I went off on a tangent. What are we talking about? We're well, talking yeah. about radio well, you're coverage? recording in Joshua's tree, right? We just wondered about your haunted recording. Oh, oh, right, right, right. We got to get... so. Sometimes I do the show from the radio station in Joshua Tree, which is a, a radio station, take calls and so forth. But especially during the pandemic, I've been doing them in the home studio, which I'm in. And uh, it's, uh, it's just an old house in the desert. And I can see the radio transmission tower on the mountain outside the window here at night so it's very uh evocative you know it's, it's the right sort of 
thing to do. And I've got weird animals wandering around outside that show up in my trail camera. So I'll be doing the show, uh, doing a, a story or mixing or whatever. And coyotes and other such creatures are wandering around. And as far as haunted, well, everything old is kind of haunted. Um, <laughs> but I do notice that that the 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 racket, the banging and the noises and everything in this house, it does stop when I turn on the on-air light. So convenient. That's here. when the noise yeah. starts at my house. Yeah. <laughs> you know. I think I've made a deal with them. I'm not sure what. You know, <laughs> okay. when, whenever I move into a new place, I make various offerings and sacrifices and stuff so that whatever's there will not uh, rebel. I grew up in New Orleans where everything's old and everything's haunted. And so you just get used to it. Well, send me that recipe because uh, I have some noise here that I need to take care of. But I mean, speaking of those experiences, you wrote in your book about, a, you know, a couple uh, spooky experiences you had. One was at the Amargosa Opera House, another one driving, you know, alone in the desert at night and being followed by uh, a pair of lights. Do you have those kinds of experiences often? I did not used to think so. I thought I had an average number of odd occurrences over life. But once I had a, a venue, I guess, that used this kind of material, these kinds of stories, I did slowly realize, good Lord, I. I have kind of a number of these, a little more than uh, uh, most people tend to have. I don't know why. Maybe because I spend more time out here. Um, maybe, uh, I don't know. My parents had their their share of, of... I think also our age is so boring. It's so, it's so simple. It's you're... The, the way that, that people in polite society act about everything now is to sound like a, a kind of snotty uh, New York Times headline. <laughs> you know, you're supposed to not be phased by anything. You're supposed to debunk everything. You're supposed to uh, basically have no wonder, joy, or magic in your life. And... I think when you break people out of that a little bit, they sort of realize, oh, my life is not so bland and meaningless as, uh, oh, there's a massive roadrunner that has just perched on the window right here. I wow, don't know I've never seen one. a roadrunner in real life. Oh, they're fantastic. Only in cartoons. Only in the cartoon, <laughs> yeah. They are fantastic. They also don't mind you know, people too much. I leave the door open sometimes. And the one that, uh, that lives here, this one doesn't live here. It must be looking for a mate. Um, it's that time of year. will come into the house, <laughs> you know, they sort of come in and, and, and they're, you know, they're, they're, they're dinosaurs. They're, they're hunters. And it just sort of comes around looking for something to kill and eat. And they're terrible when you watch them kill things because they mm. grab like a little ground squirrel or something and just, on the concrete outside. That's really kind of brutal, but they got to eat. Everybody's got to eat. So 
when I do campfire stories, which I used to do every month at the, the Ace Hotel in Palm Springs, people come around, we're outside, we have a campfire. It's like this little grotto with rocks and stuff. It feels like you're out in the desert and not right off the highway with tourists everywhere. And after those nights, people will come up and talk to me. This is another place I get stories. You know, people will come up and say, I, you know, I never wanted to mention this because people think I'm nuts, but such and such happened. You know, tell me more, tell me more. When people feel like it's a, a like they're not going to be mocked mm -hmm. and people aren't going to shun them or whatever, then they kind of get in line to say, oh, actually, I've had some odd things happen as well. Um, those lights that you mentioned, the closest parallel to those particular lights, this happened several years ago on um, Amboy Road, coming back from, I was coming back from, from Vegas, driving through the, the preserve, Mojave National Preserve. And I thought it was a cop because all of a sudden it's like okay who drives obnoxiously fast with no fear of reprisal and comes running after you to harass innocent drivers you know in the night well cops of course so i thought it was chp and then when it got behind me the headlights were round so that's not chp you know they have those urban tanks or whatever the hell they drive and, I, and so my next thought was, okay, some some bozo and like an old hot rod, old round headlights, and just got right on my tail and would not relent. So using uh, uh, the most annoying uh, kind of uh, California highway road rage techniques, <laughs> I simply stopped. I slowed down, slowed down, when it passed me, when it passed me, I came to a total stop in the middle of Amboy Road on a moonless night. And I turned my head around, you know, to flip them off. And as I turn my head around, I see there's no car attached to the lights. It's just these big blinding round, you know, orbs of light. And they retreat. And they retreat at what must have been, you know, 100, 200 miles an hour. Because I watch them go down the grade. This is a grade that comes up in the Sheephole Mountain Wilderness before you come over the hump and go into Wonder Valley. And it's a 12, 14-mile distance. I finally looked at it on Google Maps. I'm like, How far is that? How is that even possible? Went all the way down to where they're just little pinpoints of light, and then they blinked out, and it was gone. And it took me a while to even think that was something other than some lunatic looking for someone to drag race. And when I did start looking around for stories, legends, whatever, I found a very, very similar report from near Warner Springs in San Diego County on the, I believe it's the 76 going through there. Mm -hmm. And this guy filed this as a UFO report with the National UFO Reporting Center in Washington State. Yeah. That's amazing. Uh, do, go ahead. It's Abby. definitely spooking me out. <laughs> I'm definitely, I mean, were you very scared in that moment or were you like, was it one of those moments where you're like, did I see what I see? And then you just kind of go on. So, something that's common in these experiences is 
you almost immediately, unless it's just overwhelming and there's no easy substitute explanation, you almost immediately make up an excuse for it. Yeah, right. And then you kind of forget about it. The brain, and this happens in trauma, you know, the brain doesn't know what to do with something like this. So it just kind of tucks it away so you don't go nuts. And when it actually happened, all I was thinking of is, should I go down there and, and see what that is? And I thought, no, because it's going to be some lunatic on meth. He's going to shoot me. Right. right. And then only later, no, 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 there was no car. There was no car. Cars don't go 300 miles an hour or whatever and have huge lights. Because it raced up behind me at a very high speed as well which is why I thought, you know, cop initially. Um, and then later you can do one of two things. You can either keep it there, keep it in the, the, the safe space where you don't think about it. Or if you enjoy these things, you try to look for parallels. You try to, and I, I'm never looking for explanations. I'm never looking for, you know, myth busters or whatever. Uh, but I do like to see if similar things have happened in similar places over time. And almost always this is the case. And that's how we get folklore. Yeah, I was, you know, I was going to ask you, like, why do you think this is such a hot spot? But you kind of answered it just like all the all the open land we have out here where you can get away from civilization so much easier than you can in other places. Um, yeah, yeah. Like, um, you know, I lived in San Diego for a number of years and the ring of mountains and desert around San Diego has as much crazy, strange tales and folklore as you'll find in the Eastern Kentucky. Hmm. Yeah. Not to mention now we have this sort of, um, you know, UFO, UFO sighting that's making the big news from the, off the coast of San Diego. I mean, Christy and I were just talking about this before this, that San Diego definitely has its definite. You know, yeah. I, I, I don't, I don't buy into that Pentagon stuff. Oh, oh, what do you think about it? Yeah. Well, I I used to be a military base reporter. Mm. Okay. I, I worked at Pendleton and I'd come out to 29 a long time ago. But the military has something called press office or whatever. And what they do is, I'm convinced, is they do a lot of psychological testing and they find the new people coming in who have a lifelong history of lying without remorse. And those people become spokespeople for the military. No, you're a reporter. <laughs> what is, you know, the military lies about everything. The cops lie about everything. That's what they do. And it's your job to catch them in the lie. So I don't, I don't, uh, I don't know what was going on in that thing from now 17 years ago with the Nimitz carrier group. Right. What about the footage though? Have you seen the footage? Well, there's more than one. There was one last year, but I see what you're saying. I mean, uh, uh, in 19, there was a supposed drone, uh, drone swarm that went around uh, a warship group that was going, that was doing maneuvers, testing maneuvers, uh, just off the Channel Islands by San Nichols. And uh, I mean, maybe the 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 UFOs decided to. 
hover around in sight of of the coast of California and and the Channel Islands, um, and play some game with this group. But it sure sounded like a a, a military exercise. You know, it was perfect conditions for playing with people foggy dark windy no visibility you can't really do much and all these little drones and they all describe them as drones and then describe them as flying saucers you know, no aliens or anything so i think they're up to something and and if uh the past uh from the korean war on is any indication uh, they're up to no good yeah, I've, I've, well, first of all, that sounds like perfect conditions for, um, you know, a sighting like that. But I've talked to a lot of people who think this is kind of a smoke screen and trying to sort of divert attention to do something else. I Me mean, too. You know, there's, there's a lot of theories out there, but we'll, we'll see. I mean, well, maybe we'll see. But, but if you get a corresponding flap, that's the term that we use in ufology, a flap is a, a concentrated burst of, of UFO activity with a variety of witnesses in a certain geographic region over a course of days, weeks, sometimes months, as in the case of uh, the Hudson Valley boomerang in New York State in the 1980s. When you get a corresponding flap with real people, then there's something going on. When you have oh, well, this comes from the Pentagon and nobody else has seen anything like this. And they show you these video game, you know, footages, uh, uh, black and white with a, a little white ball. I mean, what the hell is that? Yeah. Uh, yeah. That's another thing that we've heard is just like, why, why in 2021, why don't we have better, better video? So yeah. Yeah. Where's the iPhone footage? The iPhone footage would at least be real color. Right. Right. That's pretty amazing that you as someone who's open to these things and, you know, thoughtful about them and thoughtful about human experiences and sightings and creatures and stuff, you, you have your own skepticism. So I'm glad we asked about that. Oh yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, enjoying this stuff and, and looking for it and telling stories and having your own occasional odd experiences should not, uh, make you just kind of wander blindly into any kind of nonsense. And I think it's interesting that kids, young people seem to have no real interest in this Pentagon story. They're That's marketing it to boomers, you know, <laughs> That's what they got a, they got a history channel oh, show. That's such a good point. So okay. that guy who's going around, he's on history channel. He's paid to do that. That's super. That's a great point. Okay. We actually have a lightning round if we can. Oh, good. Um, Sorry. I went off on the Navy. No, no, that's, that's okay. exactly. <laughs> we actually wanted to ask you about it because we want your you feel take. like uniquely. And now that we know you've been a military reporter too, you're almost like uniquely suited to speak on that. So I've, I've, I've been lied to a lot. Yeah. Okay. Well, the first question is how do you take your coffee? Um, it depends if I've gone to the store lately. <laughs> okay. So, uh, I, my coffee would be usually, uh, I make my coffee here and I'd add a little milk to it, whole milk. Um, but because it was such a pain to go to the store in the pandemic, I slowly have sort of given up on the milk, but if the milk's there, I'll use the milk. I feel similar. Okay. What is the best, uh, paranormal movie, your favorite one? Uh, what is my favorite movie? I've watched a lot of movies this year. 
on DVD, as lots of people have. Um, I don't know. The, the Maltese Falcon. Never heard of it. But I also wouldn't be able to answer that question. <laughs> oh, yeah. the Maltese Falcon is one of the great, great movies ever made. It's uh, uh, Humphrey Bogart as um, Dashiell Hammett's detective in San Francisco and right. is the most venal bunch of people you've ever seen. I think it's Howard Hawks directed it. Um, it's fantastic. It's also very short. It's only about 70 minutes long. What is um, some music that like evokes a deserty feeling? Or alternately, if Desert Oracle, your book, had a soundtrack, what would it be? Oh, well, the, the, the soundtrack to what I do is done by uh, a musician and, and composer up here, Red, Blue, Black, Silver. And he makes these soundscapes that go with what I do. And it's got, it's got a lot of elements of things I like, like Philip Glass, uh, sort of uh, spiritual, moody, um, uh, kind of minimalist, but also kind of churchy sounding stuff. I like that kind of stuff for, for uh, a desert soundtrack. For daytime, hillbilly music is really the best. There's all kinds of Western hillbilly music from, you know, the Bakersfield sound that sort of developed a lot of modern rock and roll and country music. And there used to be everywhere you drive, you'd pick up weird little hillbilly stations all over, but those started fading out about 20 years ago. Who would play, oh, sorry, who would play you in your biopic? Hopefully me. <laughs> Hopefully it'd be a documentary. Uh, I don't know. Do you have one in the works? I've been, I've been trying with TV people for the last two years. I haven't been happy with the the results. They keep saying like, "Oh, we get what you do. We understand. Da da da. We're gonna honor your vision." And then they send out like one inept camera person and one inept sound person. And they say, okay, well, I guess you want to stand out here in the desert and talk. Well, that's, that's not what I, I'm not, you know, going to be the crocodile hunter of the Mojave or whatever. Yeah. Uh, so I hope to do something one day, but I've kind of given up on, on um, the sort of people who've been interested so far, who have been the, what they call the, the unscripted television people, you know, like the, ex-wives of Beverly Hills or whatever. <laughs> well, maybe someday soon. Maybe someday. I'm very happy with what I'm doing. So awesome. I'm, I don't like TV as it is. I like radio. I like sound. You know, I like hearing from people who say, uh, we listen to the show from the car radio around a campfire and we all got the creeps and nobody could sleep. Like, good. <laughs> My well, work is a great tagline. Yeah. <laughs> well, Abby, you had a question about that sort of the transition from online to, to what he's doing now. Yeah. Okay. Maybe we'll jump back into the lightning round, but I did want to address. Oh, um, so did I screw up lightning round? No, too? no. You just brought up something that I want to ask you about, okay. which is you. Um, first of all, I want to ask when you were doing like blogging and, you know, the Wonkette and all of that stuff, did you ever live on the East Coast or have you always been kind of? based in the desert 
for most of that gawker blogging stuff um i was i was in the desert i was either in northern nevada or in the mojave i'd go okay. back you know i'd go i'd go for a week here and there but it's remote work you know it, okay. now now the whole world has learned That's that we true. can do this <laughs> well i and, wanted to ask i wanted to ask like in the early 2000s, I mean, you were on the cutting edge of the internet and, you know, digital media, like that, that competitive blogging world yeah. um, was innovative and, you know, competitive and really powerful and successful for a long time. Now you've kind of gone to the complete opposite of that with radio and the written word and a publication that you, you know, print off for the community there. Um, what, why did you kind of take a step back from all of that when you were, you know, so, um, in kind of the cutting edge of online news and online media? That's, that's a good question. Uh, I like things when they are new and there aren't a lot of rules. And before management people know about them, you know, as soon as the management people start knowing about stuff, everything gets very bland and, and not really worth doing in my uh, experience. So when things are new and nobody else understands them, then they kind of let you do whatever. Uh, and there's room for new companies, there's room for new voices, there's room for new, new writers and editors who don't have, you all know, work for a daily, you know, the, the, how it works with dailies, you know, uh, um, somebody who comes from say a small town and who has done everything who knows how to edit, who knows how to write, who can take their own pictures and, and is, is uh, crucial to a, a, a small town paper or smaller organization. They show up to try to get a job at a you know, big daily with decent benefits and that kind of thing. And they're almost always overlooked in favor of some dum-dum who just came out of college because they have money and they have connections and they've never actually, you know, done done newspaper work. So um, that's that's how it became with online as well. And just it wasn't interesting anymore. Uh, I also like to get out of things before their their saturation level. Um, but I love print. I've always loved print. I worked for papers since I was like fifteen years old. Do you think that Joshua Tree gets fair coverage? you know, in the media? Because I think so often, I don't know, we just, we see it as presented the same way over and over again. This like, you know, hipster Mecca for people from LA or yeah. hide out for weird UFO guys. But you know, like the, the, between those two stories, outside of Joshua Tree, you know, I, I'm not sure I hear anything different. I wish that every now and then the lifestyle reporter doing the Joshua Tree story would just look at the census data. Because if you look at the census data, what you see is a place that's very low income and uh, a place with a lot of elderly who are living on uh, limited social security. And there is very little opportunity for people who grow up here. Um, we have, I think, the lowest high school to college rate in the state. It's a poor rural area 
but it's a rural area with no agriculture. So nobody knows how they ended up here for the most part. There's a series of accidents, you know, a series of, of, of uh, uh, unfortunate events. And it's true that this area is turning into something of a, or at least the developers want to turn it into something like a Ojai. Uh, Ojai is like, you still need $3 million for a house, but you wear Birkenstocks, you know, it's that kind of thing. <laughs> right. um, and this is turning into that same thing. And I think people should understand the economic reasons why this boom has happened out here. The economic reasons are are very apparent where you are. Well, that that I'm curious to ask you about the people because you know Nomadland is out and it showed a lot Damn. of footage of the Southwest. I have two friends personally who are starting van life. You know, it's all over Instagram too, and I think especially during the pandemic, as people were kind of stuck in their houses, they wanted to get out and are sort of looking at their lives and wanting something different. And I think the desert appeal, as you've kind of mentioned on the show offers that, but do you, so are people who live out there like you kind of welcoming to that and like, Hey, come out here and see what we do have and what we enjoy and what makes the desert so beautiful. Or is that, is it very kind of territorial? Like, Oh, we hate that the van life crowd is showing up and you know, it, what do you I make mean, of that whole it, trend? It varies with the people. Um, I think you can't do anything about trends. It doesn't make any difference. You know, there's the, a year or so ago, I started seeing these go back to LA stickers on locals' cars. Wow. And <laughs> it always happens. You know, yeah. the, the go back to California stickers started in the Pacific Northwest after the uh, the peace dividend, after the recession in Southern California, when all the aerospace workers lost their jobs and sold their houses and looked for other places to go. And a lot of them went to the Pacific Northwest. So you can't do too much about the, the, the trend, uh, even if you think it's negative or whatever. I mean, just hang around a while, it'll change over time, but Barring a, a a catastrophic event that we can't kind of engineer our our way out of, and I don't know what that would be. I mean, already southwestern cities are making fifty year plans for uh, climate change mitigation. Like Phoenix is doing these things where they're going to cover the streets and they're going to have green roofs on buildings and all this stuff to to remove the urban heat sink and. It, this stuff works. It takes time and money, but it works. Um, people will, a lot of people are moving out here to stay. A lot of people during the pandemic, when the schools closed down in San Diego and LA and schools closed down here, they're still closed here. Um, they realized, okay, I'm never going to be able to afford a house in San Diego anywhere. I'm not going to be able to afford the farthest reaches of exurban san diego you know i'm not going to be able to afford santee i'm not going to be able to afford fallbrook so where can i go all right well i can go here i can still get to town when i need to i can buy a house i mean the real estate prices have literally doubled here in the last 18 months doubled so and crazy I, 
And yeah. I, I know real, but even with doubling, you could afford a house here if you're in the market for maybe a one bedroom condo in urban California. So it's a, it's a lot of dynamics going on. My hope is that the people who come here, I prefer people coming here because they say they love the desert than the reason why so many people came here when this place had its first boom in the 90s, which was, I'm a white person running in fear from Los Angeles because there were race riots. Hmm. That's where a lot of people came from in the 90s, you know, so there's a there's an idea that you know the locals are going to know so much and everything a lot of people have lived here 30 years they don't know a damn thing about this place and they don't care now i, I was having a, a fence put up the last house i was in um and one of the guys on family-owned fence company one of the guys on the this guy's actually outside working all the time he comes in mr lane can i ask you something i'm like yeah sure i walk in and he goes where you want this gate there's a cactus in front of it. I said, oh, well, let's go check it out. Thanks for, you know, not knocking down the cactus. The cactus was a Joshua tree. The guy didn't even know what a Joshua tree was. I said, dude, where were you born? Right. He says, uh, down the road. I said, in Joshua tree? <laughs> you don't know the namesake tree. That's pretty bad. So uh just because you've been here a while doesn't doesn't mean you know anything about it a lot a lot of people who come in join the land trust they join the conservation society they uh they they become they become part of the eco region which i encourage okay well final question uh for you from me is just, you know, more about the desert. I, I think that, you know, the desert is, the desert landscape is one of the sort of most beautiful and intriguing landscapes we have, but it's also misunderstood. Not everybody sees it as pretty. A lot of people see it as dead, right? And don't like mm -hmm. recognize the life that's out there. Um, like, what do you wish people knew about deserts or like, you know, what is a missing part uh, of understanding it? The most important thing in our time that people should understand about deserts, regardless if they think it's pretty or it's cool or it's a good place to try on outfits for your Instagram story, <laughs> which people do literally in the middle of the road. I'm so sorry. <laughs> oh, no. Oh, you need an Instagram, like capturing the Instagrammers, like influencers the, in the doing world. embarrassing things. Anyway. There is, there's an Instagram account called Joshua Tree Hates You. Oh, okay. Wow. That's <laughs> you can you can find you want to check find that out those right things now. Uh, uh, on on that feed, <laughs> which started a couple years ago when when this got out of hand. Uh, the the most useful thing to understand about the desert is even if you don't see a lot of plant life, it is, and this has been recently kind of revalidated by uh, some some new uh, studies specifically of dry lakes, playas, which are considered the, the deadest of dead zones in the desert. They're carbon sinks. They're immense carbon sinks. So when we keep desert preserved, when we don't build over it, when we don't scrape it and cover it in concrete and outlet malls and it's a carbon sink. It holds carbon. So every time we develop desert, it has a very similar impact on mitigating 
rising temperatures and rising ocean waters and uh, all those nice houses in Encinitas tumbling down the cliffs into the sea, which when you walk around there, like on moonlight, you can see it's like, oh, you put up another retaining wall. That's not going to hold for long, is it? And then you come by a few years later. Nope, that didn't hold. The property line has moved back or at least the buildable property line. So desert is a place that holds carbon and holds carbon from forest fires. It holds carbon that we produce from uh, our our factories and, and cars and everything else. So everything else about the, everything else positive about the desert, the wildlife, preventing extinction, extinction crises, preventing our mountain lions, say like the mountain lions down by Palomar, you know, they have kinks in their tails now because their, their breeding pool is too small. They're scared to cross the interstates because mm. the traffic never stops now. You, know, you can come down the 15 in the San Diego at three in the morning. There's traffic. Right. It's not bumper to bumper, but there's never a, a gap where a mountain lion or a deer or anything. Okay. Now it's safe. I'm going to go. Um, so all of this open space is a historical accident. The U S did it after they stole it from Mexico. We say stole, they won the war. That's how, how countries become countries. Uh, they sent a guy named Powell to investigate the possibilities for agriculture and build, building cities. And he came back and wrote a report, presented it to president and Congress and said, it's no water. You know, you can't, you can't build on it. My suggestion is we don't build on it. And while some of it got built, built up, mostly along the railroad corridors, the rest of it eventually became under the control of what we now call the Bureau of Land Management. And every time there's a new desert state park, uh, expansion of a national monument, Uh, an expansion of a national park, a congressionally designated wilderness area, anything like this, it's possible because this land has been held by the government. And initially, they they weren't holding it to protect the lizards or whatever. They were holding it because they were afraid that Mexico was going to reclaim land from the south and that Russia and England were going to make incursions from the north. You wrote in the in the acknowledgments of your book, Desert, Desert Oracle, that you began this in 2015 because you needed a mission to occupy the rest of your life. Do you feel like, what have you taken from personally being a part of, you know, doing this project? And do you think you'll continue it um, for the quote, rest of your life? Oh, hell yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's, it's uh, uh, I've got all the, I've got all the best parts of, of the, uh, you know, careers I sort of imagine for myself as a kid i get to perform um i get to preach i get to be a traveling preacher i get to work in print and i get to work in radio the print and radio i'd like to thank uh san diego high school for having a magnet broadcast journalism uh program there that i attended for three years at the beginning of the 1980s where i learned how to do all the stuff i still do 
Thanks again for listening to Name Drop San Diego. And thank you, Ken, for joining us. If you like what you heard, please subscribe on your favorite app. You can also find us on social media, on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at NameDropSD. You can also reach us at NameDropSD at gmail.com. Thanks for listening.